All right, greetings, you hearty bunch of hurly burlyites. Welcome back to the only Canadian political podcast that, if you're watching us on YouTube, features stunning visuals of me, about 500 of my CDs, a random potted plant, and a mystery brass table ornament over my left shoulder. In fact, we're running a contest, and you identify the hurly burly table ornament. Let's make this a social thing on Twitter. Give us your best guess. The winner will receive something cool, like one of my old CDs. I'll decide which one later, but it won't be Lionel Richie or Bjork. Those are staying with me. All right, we have another two-part pod for you today. Part one, I'm so pleased to welcome Nick Saul to the show. Mr. Saul is an internationally renowned food and social justice activist and the president and CEO of Community Food Centers Canada. He's an officer of the Order of Canada, and just this last May, he was elected Chancellor of Victoria University at the University of Toronto. We're going to talk about the issue of food insecurity. What is it? How prevalent is it? Why does it even exist in Canada? And how can we put an end to it? Part two is that portion of the program you've grown to love and have taken a solemn vow to protect small children from ever hearing. Our political panel with Jenny Byrne and Scott Reed. This week will... You know, we were bored with politics this week. So this week, we're having a proverbial chat around the bar. It's a year into the pandemic. We're going to literally have drinks with us, and we're just going to sit around and talk about the best and worst things we've ever seen in politics. Should be a lot of fun. Anyway, with all that, we'll be back with that in an hour. But first, Nick Saul. Nick, how are you? Thanks for coming on the Hurley Burley. Thanks for having me. Very pleased to be here. I love your CD collection back there. Impressive. Thank you. That's only a tiny, only a tiny portion of it. And uh, contrary to my uh, intro, I actually don't give any of them away ever, even ones I haven't listened to in twenty five years. Duran Duran, Seven and the Ragged Tiger, still up there somewhere. Oh man, that's painful. Uh, my parents live in <laughs> my parents live in a house that's probably a foot deeper into the ground because of records and CDs. So uh, I know where you're coming from. Exactly. Hey. Brother, we're a year into this pandemic. How are you doing? Whoa, I think I'm. I think I'm doing okay. Uh, I miss hugging my parents. Uh, I miss sitting in the nosebleeds cheering on the Raptors. Um, I definitely miss my colleagues uh, at work. But uh, I'm very lucky. I've been able to work from home. Uh, I can order in. Uh, I have an extra room in my house, so I have the privilege of standing still, and uh, million, millions of others don't. So uh, it's a stressful time for many, uh, but I, I think I'm hanging in there. Hope you're doing as well. Yeah, ups and downs, but at the moment, I'm okay. The moment, I yeah. am okay. Um, well, it's pretty big. So I mean, it's the, the enormity of it is, I think, will take many years to play out so we put one foot in front of the other as best we can yeah you know to be honest i don't even really know how it's affected me um i mean there's some ways in which i know it has I, I miss all the things you were talking about but in terms of it's got to have changed me this year somehow all of us yeah um well let's start with a little bio nick just so people get to know you a little bit you were born and spent your first eight years in Tanzania. Is that right? Yeah, uh, first seven. Uh, my my dad taught at the University of East Africa in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, and my mother was doing her graduate work down there. 
And they're there to uh, be part of socialist Tanzania under Julius Nereri to try and build uh, a better world, a better society, a better country. So yeah, that's where I was born. And uh, I miss the sea. I love getting back to the ocean. I'm an ocean baby. I was going to ask you, do you remember any of it? Oh, totally. I was back a couple of years ago uh, visiting the, the hospital I was born in and my, my first home on the campus of the University of Dar es Salaam. Uh, I was also in Mozambique because for, for grade 10, I missed my grade 10 year here in Canada. My parents went back to Mozambique to, to teach for a year. My dad taught at the Instituto de Marxismo-Leninismo in Mar Mozambique. Uh, and so, yeah, I have very fond memories of both my, the place where I was born and also where I lived as a teenager. And I think they, they absolutely shaped me uh, into who I am. Uh, as, as did, of course, my parents. But that experience uh, in Africa um, will always be a part of my DNA. So your parents were activists? Oh, Social yeah. Social activists? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So kids either, kids either adopt what their parents did or rebel against them. So you didn't go off and become the CEO of a major company or a, or a bond trader for Goldman Sachs. You decided to follow your parents into social activism. Yeah, I didn't fall too far from uh, the family tree. If, if I think I'd become either of those two things you just described, I think our uh, holiday meals would have been very complicated. There still, <laughs> still would have been a lot of love, obviously, but uh, we, would have, we would have had some very fiery conversations. So yeah, my parents deeply involved in uh, particularly the liberation movements uh, in Southern Africa. And uh, obviously here at home too, my parents, uh, my dad, both my parents were teachers, but they, they weren't stuck in the ivory tower. They were very involved on the ground through uh, social justice movements here and abroad. So, yep, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm with them. <laughs> so uh, Community Food Centers Canada, what is a community food center? It's a community center in a low-income neighborhood that uh, you walk in uh, without your eyes on the floor. Uh, you walk in feeling, wow, this is a beautiful space. Um, you eat well there. Uh, you meet your neighbors. You get your kids involved in a whole range of uh, activities, after-school programs, community kitchens, community gardens, buy your food at a fresh market stand. Or maybe you just sit in the main room after a great meal and I don't know, push the walls back of your crappy apartment because you're in a really dignified and respectful space and uh, you feel valued, you feel heard, uh, you build a sense of hope and self-worth. And that's what community food centers are. They're places where you eat with others. And through that experience, I think a journey begins. You start to articulate what needs to change for your life to be better, not only personally, but also from a community perspective and as much as possible societal perspective as well. Uh, people don't struggle because with food because there's enough food out there. There's plenty of food. People don't have enough income uh, to put food on the table. And I think it's really important that we create spaces that are generous and respectful, but where people can also come together to talk about what needs to change. And that's what community food centers are, and that's what they do. Uh, we have 15 of them across the country, and we're trying to build as many of these spaces. We need more public spaces in a, in a time when so much is about the individual. And so um, we're deeply committed to building 
public space where people can be together and start to move in a different way. All right. That's super interesting. I didn't realize people actually dined there. I thought people went to get their food there. Oh, no, no. These are these are community centers where you walk in and you meet others and they're well staffed and uh, you start anew. What kind of people come? You name it. Uh, all sorts of uh, demographics, but united by the fact that people don't have enough income to make ends meet. So um, the first instance you're there probably because you need to eat. But once you've eaten, uh, there's a whole range of issues that you can get involved in and to, to feed your soul and, and to be part of change. I think uh, no one wants to be poor. Poverty is not a, a character flaw or a lifestyle choice or about poor budgeting. Poverty is related to low minimum wages, inadequate social assistance rates, expensive housing, uh, mental health, addiction, a whole range of issues. Uh, and so people will walk in and, and, and need some food, but, but stay because they feel kindness, they feel respect, they feel heard. And they start to have a sense of agency in their own lives and that they contribute to something better. And, and that's why they're successful. That's why we're building so many of them. Uh, every community should have a place where people come together to eat, laugh, uh, feel joyful, and articulate uh, the kind of changes that need to happen in our society for their lives to be better. You said you like to talk to them or they or, or have conversations about what needs to change. Mm -hmm. Do you find, frankly, that the people that are coming to the centers are interested in politics? Maybe not right off the get-go. I mean, I think our world is built on relationships and community food centers are not about transactions. They're about building meaningful relationships with people. And once you give space for people to talk, and you genuinely listen, people have a lot to say about their lives. And I think most importantly, they start to realize that in, in the instance of poverty, that it isn't their fault, that there are larger systems at play. And I think our work in part is to connect those people to uh, changing those systems. So a bunch of people in a drop-in program might have an issue around housing that's quite similar. And uh, together we start to say, hey, well, you've got that same issue, you've got that issue. Why don't we work together to actually push for more affordable housing or to ensure that your landlord is improving the quality of your public housing? So I, I think you got to start, you got to start small um, and slowly but surely people together start to realize their, their power together. And I think Community Food Centers Canada, the movement we're building across the country is this uh, marriage of very respectful frontline programming, as I've just described, growing, cooking, sharing, and advocating. And it marries this real commitment to advocating for change. Because ultimately, people want a good life. People want to be valued and respected. People want to put food on the table for their kids. People have all sorts of hopes and dreams. And we need to acknowledge that and create systems that allow people to chase those dreams down and realize them. Uh, I just want to, I, I just, I'm sorry, this is a really side point, but for some reason it matters to me. Do they have any faith in the political system to potentially improve their lot 
Do they think it matters who the government is? Does anyone have faith? That's the challenge is to build, <laughs> is to build faith. So it's, I don't think this is a class issue. This is just generally convincing people that if they get involved in a struggle with others, that change can happen. It's always been thus. I mean, the arc of the moral universe bends toward justice, as Martin Luther King would say or said, uh, because people get involved and uh, galvanize around an issue and try and push it, whether that's, and change happens all the time, all the time, whether that's the women's right to vote or whether that's the weekend, although that's disappeared, unfortunately, uh, whether that's pushing for uh, increased minimum wages, gay marriage, you name it, things change. And it's because people say that thing is wrong and we need to mobilize together to create that change. So whether that's in a community food center or in a neighborhood association in a wealthier community, uh, you're trying to identify ways that we create a society where, where everyone matters and we foreground people and we foreground the planet rather than greed and individualism and the commodification of almost everything in life, which is a problem and sending us over the cliff. Those are the two big issues of our time, obviously climate change and inequality. And so we have a lot of work to do on those fronts, but it starts by people feeling each other and working toward a goal that's about change. We all have agency and we need to, uh, again, create spaces where we feel that and move. Okay. Let's put some parameters around this. I want to talk to you about an issue. Really? Let's keep it going. Wait, wait, wait. I think we're on. <laughs> I know. I want to talk to you about an issue uh, called food insecurity. This is an issue. I'm going to be frank. I don't know that I would know this issue existed if it wasn't for our mutual friend, Linda Kuhn from Maple Leaf Foods, who's passionate about this issue and has educated me uh, about this issue over the, over the years. And so can you tell us what it is? Food insecurity. It's an odd term. Well, technically it's inadequate or insecure access to food due to financial constraints. So in layperson's terms, it's people don't have enough income uh, to put food on their table regularly. And that could range from being stressed about putting food on the table to compromising on the quality and quantity of the food you're, you're putting on the table to missing food altogether. And lo lots of research shows, particularly parents missing food so their kids can eat. And this is a major crisis in our country. And what's important in the definition is that it's rooted in income, meaning poverty. People do not have enough funds to make the decisions that they need to make. And so it's important. This is a very important framing question because, and, and, and for example, if you frame it as hunger, you get a response of food programs and you get charity. If you frame the issue as poverty, you get policy responses and you get the fight for the human right to food. And we live in a country where we are signatories to the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights, which legally obligates us to respect, protect and fulfill the right to food, which we are not doing in this country. Over four and a half million people struggle in the ways I've just described with putting food on the table. And that affects populations differently. So um, generally four and a half million translates into about 13% of 
of our population. If you're a new immigrant, it's about 17%. If you're Indigenous living off reserve, it's about 28%. If you're a Black Canadian, it's 29%. Single mom, 33%. If you live in Nunavut, it's 57% of people are food insecure. So this is very significant. And I think we kind of forget how poor people are in this country. People struggle. And in fact, one very important fact related to food insecurity, and I think speaks volumes about our labor market, is 65% of people who are food insecure have attachment to the labor market. 65%. You mean they're working? Percent. They're, working. They're, they're working. Le working. So this is not wages. people who've slipped through the cracks of the welfare system. No. These are people certainly. that are in the job market. Certainly, there are lots of people in, on social assistance who are food insecure. In fact, most of them. But the vast majority of people who are food insecure have some, 65%, as I've just said, have an attachment to the labor market. So they're working in low-wage, precarious jobs. Or, well, that and not getting enough hours in those jobs. And so there's lots of people who are working two or three uh, jobs and still go home to an empty fridge, which I think is an indictment on uh, our economy and the labor market that we've created. And the importance of not only thinking about food insecurity as an issue related to government, which it is, and we can talk about that, but it's also related to our labor market and the way it produces time and again, extraordinarily vulnerable, low paying jobs without enough benefits. And as a result, people will work, 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 and still go home to a place where they are worried about what their kids are going to eat. And that is unconscionable to me in a country, obviously, as wealthy as Canada. So let me be a jerk for a second. Let me be a jerk for a second. Is the definition too broad? I mean, um, people worried about being able to buy enough food. I mean, aren't most people worried about finances all the time um, and their ability to afford different things? Is, is stress the same as actual hunger? Well, you, you tell me, like, do you worry about eating three squares a day, square meals? No, no, I, no uh, I don't, but I'm not most people. No, I'm but, much more fortunate, much more fortunate than most people. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, but the numbers I've just described are enormous. And so even those who might not fall into that camp of food insecurity are probably still scrambling a bit, one paycheck away from being in that pool. And so right. I don't know, it doesn't matter to me how you slice that. The fact that we have that many people who are either worried, compromising on the quality quantity or going without uh, should shock I hope all of your listeners and shock them into action in some way. And so like, it's easy for those numbers to careen by you and not really just stop a moment. It's not just a lack of food. It's about deteriorating mental and physical health. It's about family breakdown. It's about the difficulty of finding a job when you're food insecure and the connection between mental health and food insecurity is off the charts, whether that's mood disorders, anxiety, depression, suicidal ideation. Um, you know, if you're food insecure, I think we spend about 121% more on healthcare costs than someone who isn't food insecure. So there are massive implications 
for this. But but let me be really clear because it's the numbers can I don't know uh, maybe paralyze you and go oh my god that's such a big issue or they just skate by you and so you know the stories that we see and hear on the front lines of this crisis go like this. Um, I'm living in a mold infested basement apartment and I can't have anyone over for a meal or dinner because I don't have food. I can't send my kid to a birthday party because I can't afford a present for them to take. Uh, I can't put my kid into an after school program because they, I can't feed them enough energy so that they can participate fully. This is what's happening. Uh, people are being completely marginalized and pushed to the side and their lives being diminished and shortened. In fact, if you, if you happen to be severely food insecure, you have nine years less on your life. So there's a lot of data here that is very clearly drawing a direct line between food insecurity and poverty and low income, uh, but also a whole range of uh, health issues that uh, we should be very concerned about. So um, the fact that there are so many people like that, regardless of what the definition is, uh, should be worrisome. Well, I challenged you on the definition because the number seems too large. I mean, this is Canada. We can't have that mm. many people uh, in Canada that uh, are going without adequate food, right? Well, sure we can. It's Canada, we're a compassionate nation. We take, we're not like the United States. We don't let people get that poor. Well, let me let me be very clear. Uh, working for 30 years uh, in low-income communities, people get that poor. And whether that was when I was working in a homeless shelter with men on the downtown east side of Toronto or working in public housing or working in our community food centers, um, people are that poor. Uh, they're making such difficult choices and, and, you know, living with as much dignity as you can within the indignities uh, that poverty offers up. So, yeah, I think we all have to give our heads a shake. Uh, we live in a country that is deeply divided along class, race and gender lines. I didn't, you know, I, I talked a bit about, about systemic racism. I mean, if you look at the food insecurity stats relative to black Canadians, I mean, if you hold everything equal, uh, income, employment, uh, house size, renter, owner, black Canadians are two to three times more likely to be food insecure than their white counterparts, which should conjure up a whole bunch of conversations about systemic racism and discrimination in, our, in all our systems from education to finance and everything in between. So yeah, we, we, have, a, we have a problem in this quote, kind, caring and compassionate country of ours and uh, and change can happen. I, I, as I as I started this conversation, of course, we need to name it, track it, and then together say that that's not acceptable. And what are we going to do about it? I worked on hundreds, probably thousands of files during my twenty five years with Paul Martin. Files is a catch all term; fits most of the time, but in some cases, it trivializes an issue that's fundamentally important to the country. Bringing equal opportunity to Canada's Indigenous people is one of those cases. It's not a file to be worked on. It's a right. Paul focused so much of his political career on it. Our presenting sponsor, TELUS, shares this commitment to bettering the lives of Indigenous people through the power of digital connectivity. Working in partnership with Indigenous governments, 
TELUS services 178 Indigenous communities in BC, Alberta, and Quebec. 56 of those communities are connected to TELUS Pure Fibre, as well as an additional 87 reserves, treaty lands, and self-governed lands. The TELUS Pure Fibre 5G network of the future will increase wireless capacity and speeds while laying the groundwork for advancing for advancements in emerging tech sectors, healthcare, agriculture, and more. In British Columbia, TELUS has invested more than $25 million to date, but the real impact of this is about more than numbers. High-speed internet makes a huge difference when it comes to quality of life. The benefits include language revitalization, better, easier access to healthcare, economic development, and jobs. More jobs. My years with Paul taught me that none of this is easy work. There are barriers to overcome, and it takes the committed partnership of governments, federal, provincial, and Indigenous, working alongside private sector companies like TELUS, to make anything real happen. But it's the right work, and it continues for TELUS. You can read more about it all in their Indigenous Connectivity Report at telus.com slash Indigenous Connectivity. So, uh, you used to run a food bank, a very prominent one called Stop, and yeah. uh, you built it into something, a network of food, uh, and uh, and uh, before you went off to do to do this community health center thing. So, there are No, hold on, let me stop you, David. Two, yeah, two seconds. Uh, like, so the stop was a food bank when I got there in 1998, and then we turned it into this what we now call the community a community food center, grow, cook, share, advocate, and it was from there that we said, "Wow, we have a model that is about respect and and social change. Can we can we actually create more of these centers?" And so that's that was the genesis. We we built a model, and then I left there in 2012 to start Community Food Centers Canada. And our main work is now building these centers from coast to coast to coast. But yes, there are millions of people who struggle to make ends meet. But there are thousands of Canadians who volunteer and donate to food banks. Lord knows I buy turkeys every year for people. Um, and uh, why, why don't these food banks uh, fix this problem? Why don't they fill this gap of, uh, of uh, food insecurity? Well, they can't. Uh, food will never solve hunger, uh, as, as I've been describing. But that's such a counterintuitive thing to say that you have to explain that. Well, no amount of food charity will ever have a material impact on food insecurity in this country. So the rise of the food banks in the 1970s um, that are now, you know, thousands of them across the country, if you look at food insecurity... Food insecurity has only risen over those 40 some odd years, 40, 50 years. So I think what's important is that people volunteering in food banks and community food centers for that matter, even though they're a completely different species and work from an upstream preventative perspective, our community food centers. When people volunteer, they care, that's an expression of their care for others. And so those spaces where people are helping their neighbors need to do a number of things. They need to focus on really healthy food. And this is a big issue because the food banks are created off the backs of essentially food that doesn't sell. 
and or food that's donated. And it's not terribly healthy. It's full of fat, sugar, and salt. And as I described, there are many uh, health-related problems if you are poor from chronic, dis chronic diseases off the chart. So I think if you're working in this field, you need to focus on really healthy food. And that means biting the hand that feeds you. It means saying, I'm not going to accept that, that food because I can't be giving that out to my community. So that's one thing you can do if you're working in that, in that sector, in that space. The other is to really be clear that you're not the answer. And not all of the organizations out there do this. But I think you have so you're to helping, say You're it. helping people, but you're not solving the problem. So it's not like That's you're right. pointless. You're helping people, but you're not solving no, no, you're Yeah, but, but I think you need to be really clear about that. And then the corollary to that is that you need to create space to be talking about the structural issues that are, that is, that are creating the vulnerability in the first place. And those are things like housing, lack of income, precarious labor market. So healthy food, don't say you're the answer, and be mobilizing around the bigger issues that are actually going to have a material impact on reducing food insecurity. I think this is really, it's really important because uh, basically, uh, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to paint anyone into a corner. I think what we're trying to say is that we have to turn that compassion into a more politicized project. And it's important, obviously, to touch and feel the problem and feel part of the solution. But the solution lies in shifting public policy and increasing people's incomes. And if, you, if you're not in the labor market, ensuring that government supports are adequate enough for you, for those people receiving them, to have a dignified and healthy life and also have the ability to bounce back into the economy, which is where people want to be. Okay, so let's talk about policy then. Uh, you have uh, linked this very strongly to poverty, and you've uh, uh, you've mentioned the role of money a number of times. Is money the only issue here? Is money what's the only thing that's required? Give people who are poor more money, and this food insecurity problem will go away. It's the most important thing to focus on, and I think everything else is a bit of a sideshow. So, of course, we need to have places where people can come together. We're social beings. We need each other to not only survive, but thrive. But ultimately, I want to run community food centers that don't have any emergency aspect to them. So I think it is important to focus the conversation on income. Because if you go anywhere else, it kind of creates a moral release valve for everyone. Oh, yes, I'm putting the food into the bin at my local supermarket, or I'm doing a food drive in my community, or I'm giving out free falafels at my falafel shop, or I have you know, a food kiosk at the end of my front yard. Those things are all expressions of compassion, as we've talked about. But ultimately, we need to focus on, on income, both in the, in the labor market and also through uh, government supports. So yeah, I, I would say that it's it's pretty clear that it's rooted, uh, food insecurity is rooted in poverty, and the way we're going to get out of it is through income. Um, before we get into those options, the U.S. I've always wondered about this. What is the food stamp program, and is that a good idea? Well, the U.S. has eviscerated its social welfare state. But one of the things that they do do is provide food stamps 
for people. And uh, it's, you know, there are 50 million people in the U.S. who are food insecure. And obviously, now that we're in the midst of COVID, that number is much higher. So the food stamps are a lifeline to millions of U.S. citizens. Um, I don't see them as a salve for this. I think ultimately people need to have income in their pockets to make a variety of choices. Some of them could be food. Some of them could be housing. Some of them could be shoes for their kids so that they're okay in the schoolyard. So um, I don't want to be too paternalistic on that or paternalistic at all. So I think ultimately we need to be focusing on increasing people's incomes uh, and then letting people make the choices they need to make about how to run their lives. Uh, we're doing a bit of work on prescription. But that's why people would vegetables. like a food stamp program. That's why people would like a food, not, not overall. That's why some people might argue for a food stamp approach is that they wouldn't trust people to make wise choices with the money. Imagine that. Come on. Um, you're looking at two kids around your table. You're not going to make a wise choice about making sure that they're clothed and fed well and they have a roof over their heads. Of course, people are going to spend their money wisely. Uh, there's no evidence that they don't. Uh, so, I mean, I think this is one of the, our fundamental problems in our society that we don't trust each other. Um, and this kind of notion of personal responsibility. Well, in my 30 years working in low-income communities, I've only found people who are responsible. They're just in difficult circumstances. And they are trying to live with as much dignity and care as they possibly can with very <laughs> in a very small box. So um, I think we need to kick that nonsense to the curb. Uh, if we support people, whether that's through, again, an income in the labor market or Canada Child Benefit, that money is going to be spent on that family in the best way they know how, in a way that's going to keep them safe and healthy. So, look, that's all I know and I've seen in all my years working in this space. And again, I started it. you tell me they're not going to buy a bottle of wine or a pack of cigarettes with that money? Is that a terrible thing to buy a bottle of wine and a pack of smokes? If that's what they want to do with their money, um, but they're, they're also going to buy groceries. They're also going to pay their rent. They're also going to take care of themselves. But I see no problem in, well, I don't smoke personally, but if someone wants to have a smoke, go for it. If someone wants to have a glass of wine, go for it. And, you know, I don't, why are we policing that? You want to see the miss mischievous on the other side of the pay grade there's a bit right. of mischievous there so let, let's just assume that people are um thoughtful and people are going to do what's what's good for their their families and themselves and it's keeping a roof over your head well fed clothes on your back and yeah some entertainment we all need that all right so this takes me to, I mean, this the answer to this is obvious, and everybody who's in social policy is talking about this. The answer is a, a basic income or a guaranteed annual income, is it not? To put a floor on, put a, a ceiling on poverty or a, a floor on uh, on income. 
Um, that's the that's the thing everybody's talking about these days. Kathleen Wynne had a pilot project on it in Ontario. Seemed to be generating good results uh, before it was cancelled. Uh, do you think that's the answer? Basic income? Well, I wish we had followed through on that Kathleen Wynne study on basic income. I think we would have gotten some really interesting results and it was showing really impressive results. Uh, I'm a bit cautious about any one silver bullet. Um, I think many strands make up a support system. So there's no question it's about income. There's no question that the fight, we're all unified, or at least many of us are unified on building an income floor that no one can fall below. Uh, how we get there is the question. Uh, I think we have some very, particularly at the federal level, some very effective programs. Uh, the Canada Child Benefit is an example of that. Um, over the last few years, uh, more money being put into that program has reduced severe food insecurity in families with children by 50%. Clear correlation between income and reducing food insecurity. If you're on the other side, if you're a senior, as soon as you turn 65 and you gain access to the Guaranteed Income Supplement, OAS, and CPP, food insecurity decreases by 50%. The group that's really in trouble is in the middle, single working age adults, because of precarious employment and because of social assistance rates that are just horrendously low. So I think a lot of work has to be done there, uh, and whether that's improving the Canada Worker Benefit, or creating a new uh, working age tax credit for, for single people, a refundable working age tax credit, which is something that we're working on right now to explore the cost of it, its implications. Um, but all of that is leading to creating a floor that no one can fall below. And of course, the fight will be, what is that floor? I mean, the poverty rate in Canada for a single person is about $24,000. For two people, it's about 32, 34. And for a family of four, it's about 44, 45, wherever you are in Canada. So, you know, I, I would love to see that us at least get there and a bit more. Uh, but that's where the fight is going to be. And I think there's not only things that you can do through the Canada Child Benefit or the GIS and obviously this working age tax credit, but there's a whole range of social wages that we need to be uh, thinking about. I think of uh, the Canada Housing Benefit, super important. The Liberals have announced that. It's coming out far too slow. Uh, we need to get that out the door to stabilize people in their housing. Um, there's a lot of conversation about pharmacare, about 20% of people aren't covered by prescription drugs. They simply do not fill out their prescriptions because they can't afford them. So I'm, I, I really want to have that discussion about pharmacare. And of course, right now there's a lot of conversation and I agree with all of it around a really strong childcare program, national universal childcare program for this country. We spend about half percent of GDP on that and the international standard is about 1%. So we have a lot of room to go there. And uh, so that combination of focusing on, on income in the way I've just described in some of these important social programs, which cost money. Don't get me wrong. They well, cost they're money. not all going to happen. They're not all going to no, happen. That's true. Well, uh, they might not happen all in our lifetime, David, but uh, right. bring on Denmark. Bring on Denmark. I mean, the, 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 the evidence is really clear that when we foreground people in our policy making and we reduce what b before the pandemic social distancing was inequality 
And the more you reduce social distancing, the better off our societies are from any measure, teen pregnancy, mental health, productivity. The countries that work on diminishing inequality, bringing people together, are the countries that do best. Not only that, when you do that work, it inoculates ourselves from future shocks that are coming. So COVID-19's arrival simply um, brought to light the deep divisions in our society that were already very much in place before COVID came along. So, um, yeah, they're not all going to be, they're not all going to be one overnight, but it's my job. It's your job. It's people who want to join in that movement to say, yeah, let's foreground people. And I think that we will all be better off regardless of class. If we're making sure that we're taking care of each other. The evidence is really clear on this. So what, what are you alluding to there? What is a reason other than pure altruism why I would care about this? Because we're all connected. We're only as strong as our weakest link. Your best life is going to be when you're not stepping over a homeless person or worried about not being able to get health care because it's swamped with people who are really struggling and need it more than you. You want those, those systems to be there. And so I think that that's, we've, you know, so many of us have been brought up on Maggie Thatcher's famous line, and we've lived through this for years, that there's no such thing as society. There are only individuals. And that is complete and utter nonsense. It's like when I'm driving somewhere and I'm behind a car, I remember being behind a car that said, no taxes. This dude was on a road that was build, built by taxes. If that person swerved off the road, our taxes would come and help him. And if he needed bigger help, they'd take him to a hospital where our taxes are at work. So, um, yeah, we, the way we equalize our society is by sharing our taxes, our collective wealth, to benefit as many people as possible. In fact, everyone should benefit from them. And, you know, my mother has been struggling a bit with some health issues during this pandemic. And boy, the healthcare system is extraordinary, extraordinary. And if they gave me a bill at the end of my mom's treatments and said zero, which it is brought to you by the citizens of Ontario, citizens of Canada, that's what sh we should be seeing that everywhere. We already have it in education. I think food should be a public good. I mean, we can talk about what the ramifications of that are, but I mean, these are public goods. These are basic human rights that our tax system, our collective wealth should be sharing. And right now we, we live in an economy where like the top CEOs of the country earn 200 times more than the average worker. By lunchtime on January 1st, those top CEOs have earned more than the average worker will earn all year. That, in my mind, is not okay. It's not to say that you, you can't earn You have money. no idea how smart those people are. You can't are. make money. You have no idea how smart those people are. They're, they're full value. Yeah, okay. Yes, I'm sure they're smart. <laughs> you know, you, 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 no, I, I'm, I'm sure they're smart. You know how many smart people I meet day in, day out in our community food centers? A lot. And they didn't get the advantage. You know, equality is different than equity. And we need to acknowledge that. People are born with 
you know, the single biggest determiner of how you end up in life is who you're born to. I got lucky. Many people don't get lucky. And we need to acknowledge that. And we need to build systems that, that support people to get up and over. That's what we're you here said for. Something a few, you said something a few minutes ago. I don't want to let slip. You said that um, insecurity, food insecurity drops when people uh, turn 65. Are you saying that people who are food insecure in their working lives are better off when they've retired, even though presumably they have no savings of any kind, they're reliant upon uh, OAS and CPP, that they're better off in that circumstance than they are when they were working? 100%. Well, low-wage workers are, for sure. Yeah. Uh, really? When I give that stat of as soon as you turn 65 and you get these supports into your bank account, which you deserve, and what? Are we going to just beggar people and let people drop off the map? No, we're going we're gonna to support people. And, and one reason other than moral is that they're not gonna, we're not going to spend billions of dollars in our healthcare system to treat them. Let's support people up front. It's like, why wouldn't we put someone in a home rather than have them on the street? It's nonsense. It's crazy making when I see that stuff. It is from a pure cost benefit, leave aside rights and <laughs> morals. It makes more sense to take care of people. So yeah, as soon as you become a senior citizen, if you're a, if you were a low wage worker or you were on social assistance, your life material like improves. That's a good thing. That is a good thing. Yeah, yeah it's, but it's an interesting argument about basic income. Um, so Canadians have a complicated relationship with poverty in the adult population. Because a lot of people um, confuse it with values and choices and various things. But they have an uncomplicated relationship with poverty among children, which is universally seen to be unacceptable. Uh, one of the things Canada doesn't have that other jurisdictions do that would seem to be relatively simple for the federal government to implement is a school lunch program. How do you feel about those? Is that useful? Of course. Uh, and it should be universal. It should be funded by our tax dollars. And every time a kid walks into a school, they should be able to get a really good meal. Why not? Uh, the evidence is really clear. Uh, you learn better. You socialize better. Life is better. Uh, you're more hopeful. You can focus. So, yeah, bring it on. Uh, those are the kind of programs that we need to get our heads around and say it's worth the upfront investment because there will be big dividends down the road. And that, and that goes to all of the programs where we've been talking about in terms of social and economic policy. Um, and also <laughs> creating a job market where when you work, you're not vulnerable to being below the poverty line. So whether it's a national school food program whether it's pharmacare, whether it's a refundable uh, working age tax credit for single adults, uh, these are all important social infrastructure that start to build the floor that no one can fall below. And uh, that's what we're committed to working on at Community Food Centers Canada, joined by many, many other organizations that are at the very, in the very teeth of the problem. And 
Uh, it is not evidence that we're going to, quote, build back better. I mean, we have premiers who are attacking paid sick leave, who are not even thinking about increasing the minimum wage. Uh, so there's, there's not a ton of evidence to show that we're not going to just go back to where it was before. And trust me, based, I hope, on this conversation and people listening to it, it wasn't, it wasn't good. You wrote a column last May. You wrote a, you wrote a column, an op-ed, in which you expressed the hope that the pandemic was going to change our attitudes about these things and that we were going to realize that we all needed to get more into the same boat, not just in the same storm. And uh, I, I, I heard a lot of talk like that last spring. I heard a lot of talk like that last spring. And this spring, I don't really sense that same momentum around those issues at all. Well, the game is on. Are we going to support or are we going to retrench? Um, are we going to foreground people or, or not? So you know as well as anyone that politics is a contact sport. So there's an opportunity now to drive through. For example, for example, CERB was a very important COVID response that, in my view, highlighted the inadequacy of our social infrastructure. I mean, if you were on CERB, you were getting two or three times more than anyone would ever receive on social assistance. You'd have to be making about $21 an hour to get the same on EI as you were getting on CERB. So to me, CERB is a very important light. And let's be clear, CERB was $2,000 a month. And $2,000 a month times 12 is $24,000, which is the poverty line, the poverty line for a single adult. So it wasn't like it was supporting people to live high on the hog, not by any stretch. But CERB to me uh, is something that we need to be thinking about uh, because it's about caring and support rather than hoarding and being pushed apart. And so are we gonna be a society of hoarders in which a small few benefit greatly? I mean, look at the stocks right now, off the charts. Or are we going to be a society of sharers where we share that wealth and we will all benefit from sharing that wealth? That's the question. And quite frankly, that's the fight. And change happens when you fight for it. It's as simple as that. So the more people out there who are turning their support for others during the pandemic into mobilizing in the political sphere, in the political realm, to build this floor, the better. Okay, so speaking of the fight, the federal government has been promising a, uh, well, in fact, they have delivered, I believe, an anti-poverty strategy. I don't know that they have done anything about the strategy. How optimistic are you that positive change is coming out of the current government in Ottawa? Well, to me, I'm more optimistic with the current government in Ottawa than, than others. Um, I mean, if you look at their throne speech, Food insecurity makes it in there. Childcare makes it in there. Pharmacare. A lot of the things that we're talking about are there, but that's rhetoric. So, I mean, I think this is where what I've been talking about in the last five, 10 minutes around 
agency and us continuing to push and press and create oxygen, in fact, for politicians to move on these issues because they need to be pushed. And so, um, well, I'm always optimistic, I'll be frank. Uh, I'm always hopeful uh, because I've been involved in lots of struggles where it's been clear that if you do push and you do it strategically and you bring together politicians, bureaucrats and a very strong civil society that's making a lot of noise that you can move things in a positive direction. You can bend that arc of the moral universe toward justice, as we spoke about earlier. So to me, I'm, I'm ever hopeful that uh, we're going to get to the kinds of policies that, uh, that I've been talking about. And uh, uh, if we don't, it's because it's not because we haven't worked hard enough, but we just got to keep pushing. And uh, that, that's where I sit always, is articulate the need, foreground the voices of people who are most affected, um, acknowledge that we have deep divisions in our society, but we can overcome them if we care for each other. And not just care, not just be kind, but actually translate that kindness into public policy that supports people to, to live well. Okay. So we have blown through an hour. It's amazing um, how quickly the time's gone in this conversation, Nick. And if anybody out there listening has been moved by this conversation to want to contribute and help your fight, what should they do? Well, I'd really encourage people to go to uh, beyondhunger.ca, www.beyondhunger.ca. It's a report we brought out in the fall that articulates many of the many of the issues and themes we've been talking about here. And it also gives you an opportunity, there's a call to action, and that's to contact your MP. You know, we, we kind of vote them in and we forget about them, and then we vote for them or don't vote for them again, or maybe not vote at all. And that's not the way it works. Uh, and so beyondhunger.ca, you'll, you'll learn a lot about the issues uh, we've been talking about, but also it'll say, join us, we need you. And whether it's food insecurity or housing or whatever it might be, there is something out there for you. And so you got to figure out what, what's inside you, what you want to move the dial on. And I guarantee you, there's an outlet for you. And you'll find brothers and sisters who are working on those issues and collectively, as we've said, you'll bend it in a better direction. Well, thanks for that. I mean, genuinely, thank you for that lift because I find it increasingly easy for me to slip into cynicism and fatalism about these kinds of things. And so your belief that it's still possible to make positive change like that is, uh, it's, it's welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And uh, it can be done and it needs to be done urgently and it never happens fast enough and it's never linear. There are ups and downs, but change happens all the time. And we're, we're part of making that change. So thanks for giving me the opportunity to talk about it. No, thank you very much for being on. And when this pandemic's all over, maybe we can get together and compare record collections. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Take care, Nick. Thanks for doing this. Thanks so much. All right. Tuesday morning, 9.30. Got to be Scott Reed and Jenny Byrne. Hello. How are you? Good. Hello. How are you? Good. So this is the one-year anniversary of doing this podcast out of this cottage. Um, and uh, 
you know, given the kind of year it's been, uh, we thought we would just sit around. We found the last week of politics boring. And so we decided we'd just pretend we're sitting around a bar, shooting the shit, talking about the best and worst stuff we've ever seen in politics. And because it's been a year and because we're simulating sitting in a bar, we're all drinking, even though it's 9.30 in the morning. This, for those of you on audio, this is my favorite rum glass. It's a George Reed Memorial glass, and it is full of lemon heart rum and Coke. And I may be a little loose this morning. I have a bit of Kahlua in my coffee. I, that is so matching Hurley, who... 25 years ago, Hurley turned me on to Lemon Heart Rum. I've been an advocate, shall we say, ever since. And I advocate with my throat and my gizzard. Uh, so I'm also putting myself in it. And I've got my, my day-drinking shirt on, my Molly Hatchet, Frank Frazetta, day-drinking T-shirt. So after this, I'm I got my to a string of peppers. calls. Mm-hmm. Yeah, go ahead. You want a string of calls? I'm just going to say, after this... You know, this is all well and fun. Oh, ha, ha, let's have a drink. But I've got a string of Zoom calls that follow this all right until 2.30 yeah. in the afternoon. And all I would say is the people paying for afternoon, Scott, might not be getting their full <laughs> money. <laughs> well, David, I think I think Sgt. Peppers is the best of the Beatles albums. My, I grew up, my dad is a huge Beatles fan, so I grew up with all of the mm. albums. And I'll, tell, and I'll tell you what I did to his Sgt. Peppers album when I was a kid. I might have taken crayon and wrote all over the vinyl. Oh my god! Oh no! It's a good thing oh, he loves no. me. Yeah, that would be impossible I, to fix. So you couldn't get the wax out of the. Yeah, no, it was. Uh, it was. I and I. I think I like that album. A, I love the music with it, but I love that Paul McCartney was wearing an OPP badge on his uh, on his uniform. He was. Yeah. Well, I substitute. I I got that album by trading with my uh, church league basketball coach. <laughs> who traded me Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band for the Golden Earring album that had Radar Love on it. You bet. That, that was, was a good, yeah. That's a good song, too, though. Killer song. Killer song. That is a good song, but I felt I won that trade over time. No question. I... Yeah. It's interesting. I guess we're starting off the, uh, you know, uh, favorites and uh, so forth sort of theme, but I love Sgt. Pepper. But it's not my favorite Beatles album. I, I think, and it shifted over time. My attitude always changes here and there. But I think I've landed that Abbey Road is indeed my all-time fave Beatles album. I don't know what yours is, David. What is it? Abbey Road would be a very, very, very strong contender if it didn't have Maxwell's Silver Hammer on it. <sighs> which funny. I consider to be an abomination of a Beatles tune. It's a fantastic um, it probably. Tune. It foreshadowed the worst of McCartney's solo stuff, oh, I think. Exactly, um, it sure did. <laughs> and I love all of that. This <laughs> to Susie, hither and dawn. I love bad McCartney. I love bad McCartney. <laughs> all right, so before we get to it, I've got to read an ad from our sponsor, CN. So give me a minute, and I'll be right back with hey, you. Home of our uh, buddy, Cyrus Reporter. Well, let's let's look at that then, if we will. Um, hold on a second here. All right. Well, it's not often you get to announce an old friend's success, so I'm going to enjoy this. Cyrus Reporter has been named Vice President of Government Relations and Regulatory Affairs for our sponsor, CN. Cyrus and I go back a lot of years. 
We were roommates back in the 90s when we both supported the Chrétien government in different capacities. Anybody with any serious experience in Ottawa knows Cyrus. His name is in a lot of Rolodexes. Long after I exited, he was brought back by Justin Trudeau as a lead advisor to the PMO. Most recently, he practiced regulatory law at Gowling. I don't know anybody who knows government's relationship with business better than Cyrus does. At CN, his job will be to make sure the railway's voice is heard loud and clear in Ottawa, the provincial capitals, and in Washington and the 16 states CN's trains run through every day. He's also going to be in charge of stakeholder relations, which is a really big deal for CN. Modern companies have to get it right on environmental and social governance, things like sustainability, diversity, and responsible corporate citizenship. The times are, you know, changing. It's a big job, and we wish Cyrus the best. All right, team. Cyrus's dog, Jenny, once shat in David's shoes, and not in deliberately. The dog was out to get David. He was mad at David, and he shit in his shoes. And uh, I What kind of dog, dog was it? What kind of dog was a it? pug. It was a pug. It was a pug called Spike. Big fat pug. Yeah. Big fat shitting pug. Yeah. Yeah. Spike, Spike really did not like me. Uh, Cyrus gave Spike uh, to his parents because his job became too onerous to own the dog. Parents loved the dog. Gave the dog to his parents. A year later, the parents came to visit at the house where Cyrus and I were living. And I came home late from doing focus groups and tried to tiptoe through the darkness, got into bed and realized that my bed smelled horribly. And I got out of bed and I realized that Spike, on his first day back in the house, had gone and shit on my bed. <laughs> shit in the middle of my bed. <laughs> this dog. Nice to see you again, David. <laughs> <laughs> this dog had a long memory. <laughs> All right. Cy so, and I started at the Liberal Party headquarters. Hang on. Cy and I started Liberal Party headquarters in really? 1992, July 1992, on the same day. We both were recruited out of university to go work at uh, LPC on uh, campaign readiness under Chrétien. So, uh, and we were friends before that, but, you know, it's, uh, it's fun to see him get this job. He'll, uh, I don't know, he'll, he'll make trains different. He'll change it forever. All right. Yes, he will. CN will never be the same. Cyrus, congratulations. Good luck. And uh, we'll all be counting on you for Habs tickets. Um, so let's get to our sit around the bar chat, folks. Scott. I guess topic, we'd, we'd, we'll we'd be at the you. bistro, right? We'd be at, we'd be at we'd the bistro. Because I bistro. think the last time. I We're think at the, the last bistro. Time, I think the last time you guys at, we got, around, got together for drinks was at the bistro. Yeah. That's right. right. We would be mocking we'll, uh, their air wings. <laughs> the air fried wings. It's a secret secret to Lewis's next life. He's uh, they're great. It's all great. <laughs> hey Scotty, what's the Sorry. best election campaign that you were involved in at a senior level? Uh, that's not hard to answer. Um, because there are so few campaigns that could qualify on the all right side <laughs> of the ledger. Um, by definition, if I'm involved in a campaign out of senior in a senior capacity, that campaign may well um, be uh, throwing off blue smoke and uh, and ailing poorly. Um, 
I'd say this, it was the second half of the 04, 2004 election campaign when, um, when uh, Paul ran the, the first election campaign. And in the first two weeks of the campaign, everything that could go wrong did go wrong. Um, uh, Harper, with the help of Jenny and others, uh, I think opened that campaign very crisply, good focus, uh, had a plan. Um, we received sort of almost the entire weight of political gravity fell on us in that first 10 days. And we weren't as sharp as we could have been, but in many ways, it was almost like it was a political resetting as people said, okay, it's time for me to dial back in and make a, make an assessment of what's going on in here. And we looked like we were done. You know, you cross over in the middle of an election campaign to a point where you as the incumbent have dropped to seven points behind. You'll remember exactly, but I think it was seven, eight points behind we'd gotten down to. Um, you figure it's curtains. Like this thing isn't coming back. We've been in government for 11, 12 years. We're suddenly trailing mid-campaign by seven points. We're not. This is how uh, the end uh, arrives. And so the second half of the campaign, um, directed uh, heavily by yourself, we managed to um, take a little bit of good luck. Uh, you know, Ralph Klein talking about healthcare, gave ourselves four, five, six, seven straight days little bit of good luck in terms of some mistakes made by some of the caucus members and others um, under Harper. And we turned that thing into a comeback, an improbable comeback. And, um, and we were disciplined and we were focused. And it was, it was one of those situations where you say, we are fucked unless everything that we have planned here unfolds exactly as we hope, in the order in which we hope, and in the way in which we hope. And then in addition to that, we get a bit of luck. Like that was the situation we were in. We need every cylinder to fire exactly correctly in exactly the right place and time. And then we need a little boost on top of that. And that's what happened. And it felt improbable. And it was, um, sure, it wasn't as fun on your end, Jenny, but um, it was by far. And the reason it was the best election campaign effort is because it was so desperate and so disciplined. And we got uh, we got really focused. We got, uh, you know, the specter of death uh, really uh, focused and concentrated our energies and uh, and we executed. You know, it's so interesting that you would cite that, Scott. Because that would be my answer to the worst campaign that I was involved in at a senior level. <laughs> um, it really would be. It really would be. Because I don't think that the first two weeks were accidental. And I don't think that the first two weeks were uh, fate intervening or the weight of gravity falling on us. I think we ran a lousy first two weeks of the campaign. Sure. And I take a lot of responsibility for that. I brought like a placard to a gunfight. And... Uh, the advertising that we were running was irrelevant to the discussion. Uh, the tour we were running was irrelevant to the discussion. The conservatives framed that campaign out of the gate. And the fact that we had to scramble to save a minority out of that, I'll never take any pride in that. I'll never take any pride in that. I'll always regret the beginning of that campaign. Jenny, do you think we ran a good campaign in 2004? Um, well, at the time, I, 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 I couldn't say that I was, I was senior in 2004. I was the Ontario desk. And so for me, 2004, um, uh, there was a lot of disappointment on our end uh, at, uh, on election day. But, but I, it, wasn't, it wasn't for me. I, I was the Ontario desk. So we had gone from two seats in the merger up to 24 seats. 
Um, and at the time I was dating Pierre and he had just, uh, he had beat, he had beat the uh, defense minister. He beat David Pratt by over 4,000 votes. And so election night for me was actually like a happy one. And, and I had also been involved in politics at that point since 1997. So I had been involved in close to seven years and it was really outside of Harper's leadership campaign just months before I'd never won anything. It was, I I literally had like, we had never won anything. And so um, um, I would say in looking back, yeah, it was, you guys probably didn't have the cleanest of, uh, uh, the first couple of weeks, but, but then once you got your sea legs, uh, uh, you did, like, I remember, uh, as the Ontario desk, uh, the ad that, uh, that you guys released with, um, uh, with, um, Mulroney and Harris, uh, that, that hurt at the doors that hurt. Like that was, that was like, you know, before the, before the polling numbers were, and I think I've said this before, before we were getting reports from the, from the, uh, uh, from the polling gurus about, uh, where we were going, I was able, like, I was going to like the senior people, the Tom Flanagan's and the Doug Finley's and going, um, the candidates are calling me, um, calling me and saying, we're getting brutalized at the, uh, at the doors. And, and then a few days later it, it hit. So, um, whatever you guys did to recalibrate, um, uh, you guys, it, it worked and, and, and we made mistakes as well. Scott's talked about caucus. I think he was probably talking about the Randy white comment to heck with the yeah. courts. Um, mm-hmm. we also had a very bad, uh, last election day. Uh, we had the, the cavalry from Edmonton to Calgary, uh, in the, in the heart of like, yeah. uh, the, 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 the reform heartland of like red deer and wild rose. That's how we were we were bringing it home. And so um, we, we ourselves had mistakes during that campaign, which we learned from and never, uh, never repeated afterwards. Jenny. Yeah. When yeah. you and Pierre went on your first date, did he look across the table at you and say, are you having the chicken? Yes or no. And then you go, well, I'm thinking about no. Yes or no. Give me a clear answer. Just wondering. Don't want to probe. Don't want to be intrigued. But just curious. Uh, that's funny. <laughs> Jenny, what's the... What's the best campaign you've been involved in? Um, well, I would have to say I'd have to say my favorite campaign was 2011. Um, results do matter. Uh, I, I've had a lot of fun on campaigns that I haven't done as well at, um, uh, and those are different kind of stories. But in terms of uh, in terms of uh, end results, 2011 was a um, uh, was obviously uh, uh, the best campaign, um, m- the most fun campaign. It was it was interesting for me because, of course, it was the first campaign that I. Uh, was running like solely the buck stopped with uh, the buck stopped with me. So, so that had its challenges. Like, like I'm, you know, but th- there were days that, that, you know, um, uh, there were days that, uh, um, that were not as, as, uh, as fun as, as others. And, and so th- talking about dogs and this is completely irrelevant, but I was thinking of uh, like, I was thinking of Cyrus's dog. So my, my little dog Ty would come into the, uh, would come in and, and, and hang out at the war room. He's a little, he was a little corgi. And um, I gave up uh, carbs for uh, for Lent that year, and so my assistant Jamie um, would, I know, would go out and get like all these snacks. <laughs> Fucked an ad. And and would go and get these snacks, and she, I liked she'd get wasabi peas. And I came into the office one day, and her and I shared a shared an office. And I came into the office one day, and Ty had eaten an entire container of wasabi peas. And I'm just going to say <laughs> dogs that eat wasabi peas, it's not a good thing. I'm just, I'm just going to, I'm just going to end that, uh, end that there, but it was fun. It was 2011, <laughs> 2011 was fun. And, um, I, 
uh, because we won. But there was parts of every campaign, even campaigns that I, I disliked. There were by-elections that we've won and lost. Some of some of my favorite stories, some of my favorite memories are actually from from uh, are actually by-elections. I'm not sure if you guys have any of those thoughts as well. No. Uh, I have stories from by-elections, but not good ones. Uh, I, ruined a, <laughs> I ruined a candidate's Lincoln. I ruined a candidate's Lincoln in a by-election once. But my uh, the best campaign I've been involved in uh, was not 2004, in my view. The best campaign I've been involved in was 2014 win. For sure. Um, in which uh, yeah, the mistake I made off the top in 2004, I didn't really know what I was doing, and I thought I could run some soaring aspirational campaign um, that would uh, sweep the country. And, uh, you know, two weeks in, we realized we had to get back to the brass tacks of politics. And I didn't forget that in 2014. We started off picking a fight with Harper, which lasted for a week and basically froze the other two leaders out of the news poll for a week. And, uh, you know, and we had struck exactly the right positioning line with the NDP and, uh, and the conservatives. We didn't have to make any alterations to that campaign whatsoever. It rolled out exactly as it had been, as you know, Scott, on the, on the whiteboard. So that's the best one. That's the best well, one I was, as I know, I was sorry, Jane. No, I was going to say, and luck, luck always helps as well because uh, you guys were you benefited from Tim Hudak's, uh, you know, hundred thousand job uh, or uh, job cuts. I was going. I was. I was at a live. Um, you know, uh, Lion King was down on uh, King Street. You know, they had, and I had the kids at the Lion King thing, and I saw on my phone that he'd made this hundred thousand jobs pledge, and I, I was just. And of course, you say, as you know, Scott, but I don't know really know. I mean, my great envy is that I wasn't really part of the 2014 campaign. I was a surreptitious, surreptitious uh, uh, presence, kind of, you know, uh, bugging David, calling him all the time, going, I think you should be doing this. Uh, <laughs> and um, But I remember, I remember when that, that came across on my phone. It was only a handful of days in the campaign. And I was like, look, we all assume that the turning point in the campaign comes in the middle of the campaign or late in the campaign. It's coming right fucking now. This is the turning point. Take this thing, turn yeah. it into a bat and hit him across the head 66 times. And you guys did. Yeah. And it was, it was killer. Yeah. So I was actually, I remember this cause I was, uh, I was, uh, and I liked him a, a lot. We're friends, but it was brutal. Friends with who? Tim. Oh, okay. Um, so I was on a, um, uh, I was a <laughs> You too, I guess. <laughs> Big fan over in the uh, Florida corner. <laughs> uh, so I was—I remember because I was on a—I was on the Challenger, and and uh, I was the deputy chief of staff at the time uh, to uh, to Prime Minister Harper, and we were taking off, and I think we were going to Edmonton, and uh, um, the staff were starting to like, hey, Jenny, did you see this? What Hudak announced, and all this kind of stuff, and and the Prime Minister said, what did he just announce? And I, <laughs> and I explained it. He's like, no. And I handed, I remember handing over my phone and he like, you know, went like went through my phone and read it. And he's like, well, it seems to be over now. <laughs> <laughs> it was, we're going to start, we're going to create 1 million jobs and we're going to, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to shock you with this next part that we're going to start the 1 million job count by going back 100,000. So little, mm -hmm. That's how you know this is a complicated plan and a thoughtful plan because it's got a it's got a funny start to it. Well, right, that was a great campaign, David. It was a, almost a flawless campaign, and by all rights, Kathleen Wynne uh, 
looked like there was no mission impossible. Didn't look like she could possibly win that campaign and uh, got right off the mat and won that campaign. It was gorgeous. All right, Jenny, what's the worst campaign you were involved in at a senior level? Oh, well, um, Hmm. Well, 2015 wasn't fun, but I don't think it's the worst. I was, I was by the, by, you know, the, the day after the election that, you know, we had, we kept 99 seats and the seats that we kept, I was proud that, uh, uh, that the ground game was able to, uh, um, was able to do that. I think probably, at, so at, at a senior level, I would say uh, the, the campaign that affected me the most, it's like from an emotional and a per, per point of view, I actually wasn't senior, but it was the 2000 leadership race between Stockwell Day and Preston Manning, because I was so emotionally invested in Preston Manning. Like he was the reason, you know, I got involved in the reform party three years before. And it was like, it was unfathomable to me that, that he would lose. It was just to, to me, he was, he was the he was the movement for me. And uh, I, always, I, I, I told myself after that leadership race, I would never get emotionally invested in, a, uh, uh, in another uh, uh, leader after that. But I think that was the most, that, that would have to be the most traumatizing one for me. Like I, I remember like with two weeks left to go and people are saying, well, stock's gonna win. And I'd go to bed every night and I'd say, nope, Preston is going to win because there is no, there is no way in the universe that, that, that Preston Manning will not win. And I'd go to bed and then, he of course, uh, he of course lost, and it was very, very traumatizing. And it was the first time people in the Reform Party that had not been involved in in other partisan politics with the Tories had ever gone through a leadership race. So it really was like um, it was putting people versus people that we had never, so never had to experience. And so, like, not to go back to at the time, that was when Pierre and I started dating, and he called me one night, and he was like part of the draft day movement. So we were like, we were like newly dating and working on opposite leadership campaigns. And like, we would see each other in the halls during that convention and like not speak, like, like turn, like turn the other way and like not speak to each other. So it was a, it was a very traumatizing type, uh, type experience. Remind you, Jenny, that you're under oath. Yes or no. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Scotty? What's the worst campaign you were involved in? Uh, I have a, a wide menu of op, of uh, selections to choose from, but yeah. I'm I, I'm going to say um, the 1995 Ontario provincial campaign, Lynn McLeod. The Whoa, that's a doozy! Good the, one. The campaign. Good one. The campaign yeah. that lost um, to the Common Sense Revolution and Mike Harris, who began the campaign in third place, ended up winning a majority government. And Lynn McLeod, uh, I loved Lynn McLeod. She was a terrific uh, lady, and it's. It wasn't the worst campaign because it was poorly financed or it was poorly structured. It had great, talented people. Um, she was, um, you know, she obviously did not hit the bullseye in terms of the electorate, but she was a, a, a wonderful, competent, decent person. And the failing of the campaign was that it wasn't really about anything. It was not about anything. We'd lost in 1990 in that terrible... Um, sort of quick called surprise snap election that David Peterson calls um, suddenly boom, right? The electorate rises up and says, we are looking for someone to punch in the face and you put your face out. 
So they lose. And then you're leading in the polls in between elections. All those time, all that time, you think, okay, well, obviously Ray's going to be defeated as the NDP premier. We're the alternative. It just there was just an assumptiveness to the campaign that created a, a lack of sharpness and focus. And the and one of the ironic things is having worked for Paul and having been involved in the constitution and worked on the 92, 93. Uh, period for Chrétien and having been involved in the constitution of the of the Red Book, 95, they took, and what was fascinating was that they thought, well, we have to do the Red Book Plus. So if you go back and you look, there was like a 90-day plan. It was like, we're going to have, it, because it was the Red Book on steroids, thinking that that was the recipe for how you won elections, mistaking the fact that the Red Book in 1993 for Chrétien really was... Um, it was gravel in the hole uh, that was uh, his the, the, the cavity of his policy and 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 competence. Right? People are like, well, you know, I like Kretchen. He's a nice guy. Does he have the plan? Does he have the program? Does he know what to do? And the red book filled that hole. And they made the mistake of thinking, oh well, does he have the people? Does he have the plan? Will he make a difference? Well, that's my all-time favorite slogan. <laughs> We have the people, we have the plan, and we can make a difference. A difference. We can make a difference. So they thought, well, we'll just we'll just we'll just migrate that down the 401, and we'll win the election. And of course, that's not how it works. And 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 I remember that election was um, in the spring, and on the other side was a highly focused. And the irony is, of course, they ran this Red Book Plus thinking, well, this is all going to be about the competency of the platform and it's going to be the, the, the standard by which we'll be judged and we'll win. And on the other side was the common sense revolution, which I think in many ways um, correctly interpreted the lesson of the Red Book and used it to uh, Harris's advantage and did something uh, different, um, completely different, because it was a program that said, "Here are our three priorities. They're crystal clear. They're uh, thought through." And this is and anyway, so it was it was a terrible campaign. In the middle of the campaign, God love him, the guy that was running the campaign uh, went missing for like four days. Then came back. He'd grown a beard. He had broken his toe. He was on crutches. Uh, he's a friend of all of ours. I don't want to make the guy feel bad, but it was like, he said, well, look, I had a dream that my house was on fire. I fell down the stairs and I broke my toe. And then I was like, oh my God, we're fucked. We're so desperate. You know, you know, you're like, hey, can anybody get Freud on the line? I'd like to interpret this dream. There was no, no difficulty interpreting that dream, right? So that campaign, um, it, it fell to threads and it had no second beat. It just had no, there was no once, once the lead was sacrificed, it was like, well, we, does anybody know how to pull this airplane out of the dive? Nope. Okay. Well then I guess have a drink and uh, wait for the sudden stop at the end. That's, a, that's an interesting thing. Cause I, you know, I mean, I, I could answer to this question, worst campaign I was involved in. I, I could answer either Oh four or Oh six. Um, and I think they're different. Oh, four, I had conceptualized it incorrectly. I think 06, we had a great plan for the campaign. I have a much better plan for the campaign than in 04. But then events derailed us. And, you know, I I have an admiration. I think, I think I'm good at strategy and conceptualizing how the campaign ought to go. But I admire guys like Don Guy who are good at managing a campaign and are good at reacting to things and are good at taking advantage of opportunities and and I don't think that I've been as sharp at that and adjustments. And so we just got punched and punched and punched from Christmas on 
in 2006 by a variety of sources. And I don't think we ever found a way to land one back. No. And so, um, you know, at the end of the day, you got to find a way to manage your way through that. You know, Ken Dryden told me there's always a way to win. You just have to find it. So that makes me feel like a failure every night when no, I land. No, don't. Um, <laughs> not to. Well, how about throw beer and popcorn on that fire? I mean, I felt, I don't think I've ever had a stretch in my adult life where I felt so unmoored. I didn't even feel for that five, six, seven days. I didn't feel like I could tender advice. I felt like I surrendered my ability to be heard. Um, I wanted to crawl under a rock. Like it was just, it was just a, so you talk about sort of, you know, I, I would, by contrast, I would, I would say that one of the things I try to pride myself in is the um, tactical response um, and saying, okay, we're in the moment. How do we, what do we do in reply to that? That's usually my strength. But I had so I had so tarnished my coin with beer and popcorn, I couldn't even participate in the effort. Not in a not in a fully functioning way. I was just a I was just a, a puddle of. Uh, well, no one likes fail. to be the story. No one likes to be the story. In 2015, I I you know it was similar for me. I I didn't have a a beer and popcorn incident, but we obviously had internal problems in our campaign, and and they became uh, they became uh, very public. And so, like for you know for you know five straight days, I led you know, the CTV uh, news and uh, was on the front page of the Toronto Star. And it's, and to your point, Scott, it's very hard going in and then trying to like, the, 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 I think probably the most personally challenging work thing that I've ever done is to go in every morning and pretend that uh, it's not me uh, on the front page of the Toronto yeah. uh, Toronto Star, and our campaign isn't uh, isn't blowing. Hey guys, no, nothing to see here. We're all like, you know, what is it, chemical chemical alley or whatever for like uh, yeah. or, uh, during the uh, Gulf War. The, the tanks are not in Baghdad, and so um, it's really hard to go in and actually like, you know, you take a deep breath and you're like, okay, well, I'm gonna try to pretend that uh, like the elephant in the room is not me, kind of thing. How do you command the room? Right? It's like. Well, we're supposed to listen to you? Didn't, uh, you know, not only mention, right, we spend all of our lives, right, sitting in rooms after people have left the <laughs> press conference and they come back and they go, okay, what are you, well, you did this wrong, you did that wrong, you know, oh, God, look at what they're saying and they like, oh, don't be such a suck, you know, pass, you know, toughen up and all this sort of stuff. Then suddenly we're the news story. You're like, holy fuck, man, this is a crisis. This is a disaster area. Um, you get a little taste of that medicine is... Uh, no, it's, 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 it's awful. Like the, for me, it was the, like the only time I actually like was really like, I was able to kind of keep a, like a straight face. Um, but like my grandmother called me at like on the Thursday and she's just like, I'm just calling to see how you're doing. Like, and so then you kind of realize right. like, it's already like, it's not just political people watching this. Like it's gotten to the point that my grandmother and Lindsay has, yeah. has, uh, has realized that like, you know, uh, 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 you know, things aren't good. She was at least sincere. What about all the people in politics who call you and go, oh, Jenny, how are you doing? Oh, oh. yeah. How's it going? And my stepfather yeah. rarely swears. Like, I, I rarely swears. I remember him calling me in the middle of 06 after beer and popcorn and going, I'd like to strangle that fat fuck Mike Duffy. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> this is penetrating with the public. I think people are hearing about this. It's my... It's kind of my, I, the mercury is rising. I am in trouble. No, but you, I'm sure you guys have found it too. Like it's in those moments, like, you know, I, I always knew I had friends and like, you know who your friends are, you know, who, you know, 
not enemies, but you know, the people in your own team that don't like, aren't all that friendly, uh, that, that kind yeah, of have a smile. I have none of those. I don't have a smile. They're like not going to stand between you and the wire fence. Yeah. And sure. so yeah. one of the things though, that that is, that did, is it really, for me on a personal level, it showed who your friend, who, who my friends were and who, who, uh, um, and, uh, and who weren't, and there's a lot of water under the bridge. It's, it seems so, it seems so weird. Like I, I speak to, um, uh, I speak to almost every single person that, uh, that, that I worked on the 2015 campaign on, and it just seems so long ago and so much, uh, so much water under, uh, under the bridge. Cause, because you also share like, regardless of internal fights or what have you, you share so many experiences with people, even if you disagree with them on certain things. Like it's, there are, there are only a handful of people. And I'm sure you guys have seen that you guys feel the same way that have the exact shared experiences, the same campaigns, the same relationships that know the same people. And so you don't want to, you don't want to lose that because you actually, there's only few people that you can have an inside joke with that will, you know, you can say something that means nothing to anyone else. Uh, but if you say it to them, they like burst out laughing because you have these shared experiences. Yeah. 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 Hey, Jenny, what was the worst campaign anybody ran against you? Oh, I'd have was to. the shittiest opponent you had? Uh, it, it, listen, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a toss up, but it, I would have to say Ignatiev ekes out Dion. Um, but those two were really fucking bad. <laughs> Why was Ignatiev worse than Dion? Well, he was just so not likable. Like I've, I, I think I've said this before on the podcast, like, like, like Michael Ignatiev reminded every woman of their first husband, like he was loathsome. Like he repelled people like you would watch in groups and like women just, they were repelled by the, 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 the look of him, how he spoke, um, all that kind of stuff. Dion was different. Dion was, Dion was different. He, he like hedged his whole cam campaign on the green shift, which, which was just so academic and, um, not political. There had like the green shift, the 2008 campaign had no retail appeal, uh, uh, to, to, to anyone, which is what, uh, which is what hurt them. So, but if I had to, to put the two together, I would say Ignatiev was by far the worst, uh, the worst opponent. Okay. How could, how could it not be? How could anybody <laughs> top that? How's anybody ever going to get in the ring with Ignatiev in 2011? <laughs> right. He's, he's, Sugar Ray Leonard Muhammad Ali and you know <laughs> Bill Lewis all wrapped up into one. It was uh he's the, the well, what about terrible. You? What it about was you guys? So brutal that I'm listening to it was the, more like the Washington Federals, I would yeah, say. Listening to the rising um, on his iPod and then taking out a commercial that was 35 minutes long with him just barking at people. Rise like, up. Yeah, rise up. And it's like, dude, like the these town halls you're doing are not working they're not affecting anything you keep doing town halls and it's like i know the secret to success will be to take the town hall and to buy primetime television showing the town hall and it's like you're act like and it actually was psychologically the whole key to the thing in my view it was so completely instructive because it's like see you're laboring under the impression that if people just saw more of you they would like it and the problem that you're not getting is that people see you fine and they don't like it so, you know, oh God, it was maddening to watch that campaign. Didn't they spend, didn't they spend like a week of that campaign thinking that people were going to vote against the conservatives because they were using Facebook to screen out liberals from their rallies or something? Like, oh, it was, it was, uh, yeah, there was so many, it was all, it was all bizarre. Self, it, it wasn't like there weren't good something. people around it, but it was just pure candidate self-indulgence and, you know, just incredible. Yeah. Well, he was seen pretty impervious to advice. I'm not sure I would blame his advisors for that campaign. That's for darn sure. May have mailed it in a tad. 
Um, <coughs> well, we talked about the worst campaign run against me. Uh, we talked about it earlier, and that is um, that is the uh, PC provincial campaign in 2014. Never seen anything quite like it. Um, not only did they make that disastrous strategic decision about the 100,000 jobs, um, which, Jenny, you talk about not having much retail appeal. That's a tough one to sell door to door. And um, But it was also just a horrible campaign. Like, his tour was awful. His appearances looked awful. Their advertising was awful. Their platform was wrong mathematically, um, uh, undercutting their coal point about job creation. Like, it just was a disaster from start to finish. Um, and uh, uh, since he was a sponsor of this program, I'm going to assume that he deserved better than that. But that was a terrible, that was a terrible campaign. And, and like I, I like to say that I had developed a good strategy for that campaign. But you rarely can expect your opponents to play their role in your strategy as well as Hudak played the role he was expected to play in ours. Yeah, it, yep. was, um, it was no good. No good. Um, okay, so David, you hate by-elections. I actually don't mind by-elections. Um, do, do, we, do we have any stories you want to talk about with by-elections? God, by-elections. So, uh, Colin Thatcher gets convicted of murder and she's, creates a by-election. That's one way to create a by-election. Bad. bad political um, development. Murder, yeah, murder your wife. Um, and uh, we have a very strong local candidate for the ballot. We have no seats in the legislature. We have nothing. But we've got this local auctioneer that we've convinced to run for us named Bill Johnstone. And uh, I get sent out there by the executive director of the party, Steve McGannity. I get sent out there to, uh, to do some organizing. And the guy wouldn't let his wife canvas. Um, he's very chauvinistic and he wouldn't let his wife canvas. And she was a very bright and engaging person. And so one day I say to her, let's get out there. Let's go meet some people. She says, oh, he'll kill me. He won't like, and I said, no, 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 we'll be back before he gets back. He'll never know. Let's go out and meet some people. And, and so we go and we took his car. We took his car and, um, uh, his, uh, his Lincoln. We took his Lincoln and we were going around coffee shop to coffee shop and visiting people. And she was doing fantastically. And um, then we were driving back and we saw one last, we saw one house. We thought, oh, we'll go and make one more stop. And we drive down this road toward this house. And as we get closer, it becomes less clear that the house is occupied and more clear that the road is not a road and that we are on something and it's springtime and the road has turned into complete mud. And I can't go forward, and I can't go back, and I can't turn around. And she's starting to panic because he's going to get back before she does. And uh, so I make this decision. And if you're ever going to trust <laughs> me with anything, whether it's a campaign or your child or anything, you need to know this. I made this decision that I could see another road that looked better a few kilometers down and Saskatchewan horizons are like that. And there was a railroad track between them. And I took that Lincoln down the <laughs> railroad track. 
and I destroyed the undercarriage of the car. Destroyed the undercarriage of the car. We're driving back. We get back on the highway finally. We're driving back to Moose Jaw, and you can hear the parts of the car scraping along the highway. And she, by this point, she's hysterical, laughing hysterically because she knows her life is over. And uh, and I got back to I got back to Regina, and I immediately got in a plane and went to Ottawa for a young liberal meeting and disappeared from the whole place. But the guy went the list. Oh, that's brave. And anybody who was running the Saskatchewan Liberal Party back then uh, would. Uh, quite angry with me for the state that I had put uh, our candidate into and the fact that the Liberal Party, which had no money, had to buy him a new Cadillac. Uh, wow. So, yeah, that's, that's my by, that's my by-election story. Well, I love I, that you got on a plane. Yeah, oh, sorry about your marriage and car <laughs> and life, Barb. Now. Yeah. Well, one of my... I, I actually love by-elections, and one of my uh, favorite by-election... Um, uh, by-elections was in, uh, we've talked about uh, uh, your friend, uh, Maurizio Bellavacqua, when he uh, uh, he stepped Rizzo. down. To, yes. uh, and, uh, of course, we had Julian Fantino. Stepped down from finance. Yes. Um, yeah. who, who, and Fantino was a star <laughs> candidate, as, as I've said. And I've talked about the by-election uh, before, but one of my favorites, so in dealing with with the locals in uh, in Vaughan, I used to joke that it was the five families of Vaughan that I I'd have to come and like basically like you know uh, I hold court with to uh, to you know we need yeah. we need you to raise money we need you to do this you need to, need, need to do this I, I felt like the Godfather mu music was uh, was playing in the background when uh, when I did this so so one day I was coming into uh, I was coming I had landed in Toronto it was in the morning and one of my uh, former colleagues. Um, a guy by the name of Matt Wolf, who actually works for Jason Kenny now, he called, he was on the ground yeah. there and he called me and he said, um, I, I, are you close? And I said, yeah, yeah, I'm just passing Canada's Wonderland. I'm going to be there. And he goes, well, we've got a bit of an incident here. Um, and uh, I was like, what do you mean an incident? And he's like, well, he goes, um, uh, the cops are all here. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And he said, just anyways, and he hung up. And as I pull up, there was like the, the, like, like the like CSIs of like the York region uh, is are like outside of this campaign office. And it was one of those like buildings. And have I told this story before? I think no. I might've told you guys, no. but I'm not sure I told it here. And so it's like one, I of, haven't those, heard it. it's, like, it's like one of those buildings in the middle of like a strip mall. So it's like, like it's a, um, uh, it's in a parking lot. And I, so like I pull up, I have like my cat, like I, I get out of the cab, I've got my like suitcase and literally like people in white uniform, like the white outfits, like are dusting off um, uh, things. And I, and I like go to go in and the cops are like, sorry, ma'am, uh, you can't. And one of, one of Julian's campaign workers who in a very stereotypical way is wearing an, a green umbro tracksuit. Uh, he's like, oh no, 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 she's good. She can come in, she can come in. And so I like <laughs> go under the yellow tape and I'm like, so what's going on? And they're like, oh, we had our signs were stolen last night. And I'm like, what do you mean our signs were stolen last night? Like they were ripped off the building. And I said, okay. And it's like, well, it's, you know, it's bullshit, Jenny. Uh, we have to find out who, who got to this. And like, it's literally like all of these, like, and so anyways, it, what it turned out to be like, uh, like, so anyways, we, we, 
dispersed everyone. And what it turned out to be is that they had broken the uh, like the, the the lease agreement, and they were not supposed to put signs up. So it was actually the it was the uh, uh, it was landlord. The, uh, landlord coming and like tore down the signs. And so, anyways, that's it's one of my favorite like because literally it was like walking into an episode of CSI. Whoever surreptitiously on this call. I'm going to guarantee you that of the three of us on this call, all three of us have surreptitiously taken down opponent signs. Well, that's that's a dirty trick and um, and a cowardly. <laughs> I believe that, and, David. Uh, I believe I believe that's against the law. <laughs> and it definitely didn't happen. With one of those cheap three ninety nine styrofoam uh, uh, freezers that you can stick in the back of your car um, and uh, drive around with, no, no, never. Uh, and and never and never never and and never did I take uh, literature off of like a door a doorstop and like stick it into like my jacket, like never, because that's illegal as well. No, never it's did not I like walk. when you're door knocking. Not like when you're door knocking, you see the other candidate's leaflet in the mailbox. You don't touch that. You leave that there, right? You leave it. You leave it I there. I want people to be informed you, in their choice. You, you, and you I'm don't confident shove it. that if yeah. they know all, exactly. Choose us. You you don't shove it down the storm sewers, and you don't throw it in the garbage pails. No. You just that, those are things no. you just don't do. Don't. It's against the law, as you said. Um, Scott, did you sure. have a mentor when you got involved in politics? Who would you um, say was a mentor of yours? When I say it was a mentor, um, I would say that I, I, I didn't have an appointed mentor. Um, but uh, Huey O'Neill, who was a cabinet minister for David Peterson, Huey O'Neill was a guy in the riding what was then called Quinty uh, in the uh, Ontario legislature. Huey O'Neill started getting elected in 1975 as a liberal. And that, yeah. that was impossible. Like that, that made no sense. That was United Empire loyalist country. That was died in the wool conservative country. That was the kind of place where people used to make the, the yellow dog joke. You could run a yellow dog as the conservative candidate and they would win. And Hugh O'Neill won that riding starting in 1975 and all the way through until he decided to retire on his own terms. He was not felled by the 1990 sweep. I actually was his campaign manager, his local campaign manager in the summer of 1990. I couldn't find him on election day. Couldn't find him anywhere before cell phones. I wandered around. I found him in a swimming pool. He was like, brother, I'm not going out there to meet people. It is not fucking nice out there. We're not talking to people, right? <laughs> I'm having a swim and we're going to go and then we're going to put this night behind us. Um, but what I learned from Huey, uh, which is down in the area where I grew up, Prince Edward County, Belleville area, Quinney area, um, like just that, the, the indefatigable contribution that a constituency politician makes, right? He was a cabinet minister um, under Peterson, but man, he was first and foremost a constituency politician. And what he did day in and day out was occupy himself with how his constituents were doing, right? He knew how to pound on the door of everybody in government, everyone throughout the public service to secure things for his folks. I mean, it was a real old style politician. And when he walked through a crowd, he knew how to talk to people. He knew how to, um, he knew how to treat people. And so just watching that, 
Um, and, you know, because it's easy when you sort of work for a premier or a prime minister to sort of think, well, all the people that are involved in that kind of, you know, all those local folk and all that local, cons- you know, you think, well, you know, that's all. It's not even remotely beneath you. And watching someone early, early, early in my political experience who understood the value of that, who understood how to do it, and who could get elected against all odds on the sheer force of his will and his ability to connect with people, that was really an important thing for me. Yeah, when I... When I was 19, Ralph became leader of the Provincial Liberal Party, and I've been involved in politics for about a year and a half, maybe two years at that point. And he hired a woman named Donna Welke to be the yeah. executive director of the party. And uh, so I worked for her in the run-up to the 1982 election. And Donna's one of these people, you know, she's been a candidate, she's been an executive member, uh, and she's been the executive director of the party, and she's been a campaign manager. She ran Turner's leadership campaign in Saskatchewan. And uh, I, you know, I mean, I had I had great elected mentors. I had Ralph and people like that who taught me lots of things. But in terms of teaching me about politics, and teaching me about the ground, and teaching me about the Liberal Party, Donna's the one that really gave me the fundamentals. Gave me politics one hundred and one. Uh, and, uh, that's a, that's a solid grounding and she's such a good person. That's really important too, that, you know, the politics is a good endeavor, that it's not done by bad, shady things done by bad people, but that it's important things done by good people. And, uh, so that's my mentor. Jenny, do you have a mentor when you first got involved? Reform Party. Um, well, um, I, I wouldn't say when I first got involved. I had, I had a I had a bunch of people that I that I I learned from and and that, taking my uh, third poll on this thing. Just uh, sorry to interrupt, but no, no, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, there are people like uh, you know Rick Anderson and Corey Tonight when I first got involved that uh, um, uh, that 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 I learned from. But I I'd, I'd have to say my first uh, mentor, probably my only one really in uh, in politics, was Doug Finley, and so. Um, D- Doug, uh, I met Doug uh, in a by-election, the the Perth Middlesex by-election, which we've talked about before, and uh, he uh, then went on to be the director of political operations and the national campaign director. and And Doug was a guy who um, I learned a ton from, and he was such a, um, uh, he was very extremely smart. Uh, he uh, uh, his style and mine were a little bit different, um, but I-, I learned a lot from him. And and one of the things I always uh, say that he did, and I try to do that in terms of people that uh, that I I've mentored in the past. Is he's let he let me make a lot of mistakes, and so D- Doug would Doug would let me sit at the table, uh, and in hindsight, with people that I never should have been sitting at the table. I was not at that level. I I never I sh- I shouldn't have been there. And Doug Doug not only did he he bring me to the table, he encouraged me to be the one that that uh, that talked. And sometimes you know I get slapped down and. And, uh, and, and what have you, but uh, it, was, it was a great learning experience. And I learned more from him uh, over the years we worked, uh, we worked together than, uh, than anyone else that I did in politics. Yeah, that's gotta be a big part of mentoring, eh? is dragging people into circumstances earlier than they would normally get there. Um, so that they get some of those experiences at, a, at an earlier age and they advance more quickly. Anyway, in 1997, I would just add on that kind of point. In 1997, John Ray was chairing the election campaign, the general election campaign, longtime closest advisor to, to Chrétien. And he personally made it possible for me to work on the Redleaf thing. 
right? Redleaf, you know, the liberal coalition uh, for advertising. And, you know, he basically made me the the kind of secretary uh, to that. And that was a right. that was a valued and prized job. And I got to witness ad making, ad strategy, you know, John Hader, those guys, they brought me in, they let me play a role, they let me fiddle with scripts and stuff, right? So like, like you say, like having people who are in really senior positions who say, I don't know, for whatever reason, I think this person could be a gamer and giving them opportunity or even just giving them exposure, monstrously important. All right, folks, we are going to continue drinking, but we have to end the podcast now. So uh, we're going to continue to sit around our bar room uh, stool and and drink and tell stories, but the podcast has to end now. I would like to end with a toast. I'd like to toast two things. I would like to toast us getting through a year of COVID, and I would like to toast Cyrus Reporter and his new job. Hey, so here we go, Cy. Here's to the end of a year of COVID, and here's to you, Cy. Cheers. Cheers. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening this week. Go ahead. Spike, the dog shitting, dog hating, (laughs) David hating. God bless you, Spike. You were a sweet. You were a sweetheart. I love. We'll be back next week with some contemporary political discussion. We hope we'll see you then. In the meantime, thanks for listening and give us a shout out if you can. Take care. Bye.